Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'm going to read from uh, Exodus, the third chapter, verse 17. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Feels great to feel the uniting of God. My title, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. You can be seated. Before I get too emotional here, I gotta share a story with you that I shared some time ago, years ago, and some of you may have forgot it already. I you know I was thinking the other night I was up late and it was ten o'clock and it it said, Do you know where your children are? And then I I thought to myself, as I'm getting close to 68, it should say, do you know where you're at? (laughs) I still think I know where I'm at. Um, But as I get older, I realize that I just can't do the things that I used to do. And uh, sometimes I get so envious of people that are in their youth, have all that athletic ability that I once had, I see them run and jump and and tumble and roll and all these other things and think, yeah, I used to be able to do that, but now it's hard for me to get off the floor if I lay down. But so I want to share this story with you. I can't say that it's a true story. I think you'll see that as we get into it. A psychiatrist was flying to Chicago to attend a conference. As was typical, when he struck up a conversation with his seatmate, the talk turned to his neighbor's fear of flying. This does have a go along with my message, by the way. He said his phobia began several years ago before all the security measures were installed in airports and a man had taken a bomb aboard his flight to Denver to kill his mother-in-law. He said, ever since then, until recently, I couldn't get it out of my mind that someone on board my flight was carrying a bomb. Psychiatrist was intrigued, and he asked, well, what did you do to relieve your fear? Well, the man replied, well, I I went to one of those special schools for people who are afraid of flying, and they told me there was one chance in 10,000 that someone would be on board my flight with a bomb. That didn't make me feel much better. The odds were still too close. But then I reasoned that if there was only one chance in 10,000 that one bomb would be on the plane, there there was only one chance in 100 million that two bombs would be on board. And I could live with those odds. Now, the psychiatrist was silent for a moment while he tried to figure out the man's reasoning, then said, what good would that do you? Well, the man replied, every since then, I carry one bomb on board myself just to improve my odds. (laughs) Everyone's playing the odds. How many times do I get, I hear on the television or in the newspaper or on the radio, These are the odds. These are the polls. These are the odds of this is what's going to be there, this, and this could be this way, and these are the odds. But I want to tell you the odds are in our favor. For greater is he that is with me than any that could stand against me. Now, I want to go back, and I want to read from Numbers, the 13th chapter. Now, we read in Exodus, the third chapter, that God had given a direct promise through Moses 
to God's people that they were going to leave bondage and he was going to take them to a destination, to a place that he had prepared for them that was a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was a rich land. So they have left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They have saw the, the water split. They saw that pillar of fire by day and that, that cloud or the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day for 40 years. And they've ate manna that's come on the ground in the morning and they've drank water that's come from a rock. Every day is full of the miraculous. Every day. There isn't a day in those 40 years that they did not see some type of manifestation of God in their life. You, all you had to do was look up and there he was. A cloud or a fire. Every morning when you went out, except on the Sabbath day, there was manna on the ground and more than you could eat. But now they've, they've made their journey and they've come to the promised land. It's been 40 long years of wandering in the wilderness. And I'm reading from verse 1 and 2 of Numbers, the 13th chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers shall send a man, every one a leader among them. In other words, these weren't randomly picked out individuals. There wasn't a draw and somebody just lucked out to go. Every man was chosen from one of, the, of one of the 12 tribes that was a leader in the tribe. Then when I go down to verse 17, and I'm going to read uh, a number of scriptures here. I want you to see the scenario so we can build the picture. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south, and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or, or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahiam, Shashai, Tamiah. The descendants of Enoch were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshel and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They could see it, they could touch it, and they could taste it. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It's just as God described it. But there's that word. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then finally, Caleb quieted the people 
before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. If you're looking at it from a human standpoint, the odds might not have been in their favor. They were playing the odds. They never took into account the God that split the Red Sea, the God that fed them for 40 years in the wilderness and how he provided for each one's health so none ever got sick, how he provided for their clothing. They never considered the deeds that the Lord had already performed and what he could perform in the future. They only saw themselves. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, they came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. I call it the grasshopper complex. It's a complex that is more deadly than the coronavirus. It sneaks into the church. It sneaks into your mind. It sneaks into your thoughts and tries to tell you that you are an insignificant, insignificant thought on this earth. You have no real importance. You have no real authority. You have no real power. That is not true. If you're a child of God, you are all of those things. And so all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or only if we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our lives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? God never calls you into anything that you will fail at. God never gives you a mission where you're ultimately destroyed. You may be knocked down, but the Lord always picks you up, and there's always a victory in the will of God. Always a victory in the will of God. There is a heaven that cannot be destroyed or conquered or overrun. There is a place for each of us who has bore his name on the earth. And yes, there's obstacles in our path. And yes, some of those obstacles seem bigger than we are. But again, I say, greater is he that is in me than anything that's in the world. They were looking through humanistic eyes. They were looking at the odds. They forgot that in Egypt they were slaves. They forgot that in Egypt they had no freedom. They forgot that when they were in Egypt, they did not have the ability to worship God freely. They forgot that in Egypt they were despised by the Egyptians. They forgot that they were impoverished and living in terrible conditions with no hope before God sent Moses to deliver them. Those 12 men, for 40 days, they ate of the blessings. They ate of the fruit, the pomegranates, all the things of the land, but yet they could not see beyond their own weaknesses. If it weren't for the inhabitants of the land, if it wasn't, for, if it wasn't just for the evil of this generation, if it wasn't that 
people were so embedded in sin, my life would be so much more easy. But God didn't call me to rest on my journey. He called me to claim what was his and to fight a fight. Up to the point that they went, they sent those 12 spies in, they'd only heard of the promise. They'd only heard tell of what Moses was told by God, but now they tasted of the fruit. They saw the fruit. You know, for years, up to the day of Pentecost, people heard about a promise. They heard about a place that God was preparing in the future. But when, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell upon those 120 120 people in the temple on that day, they tasted the fruit of the place that we're called to. Now I want to tell you tonight, I think every one of us in this room could raise our hands, just about every one, and say, you have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. You should never, ever, again in your life, question whether there's a heaven. You have tasted of its divinity. You've tasted of the power of healing, the power of peace, and provision that God gives. But it's only a token of our inheritance. They believe their fear over the grapes. And sometimes, if I can make the correlation, we believe the fear that the world offers us over the promises of God. They lost sight of the grapes. And the promised land all of a sudden lost its grandeur. Now, I had just mentioned, uh, what are the fruits of promise? Well, we look at them in the scripture. It's really plain to see they're the fruits of the Spirit. Nine gifts of the Spirit and nine fruits of the Spirit. You want to know what heaven's like? Go back and look at the fruit that you ate. You ever feel perfect love? Have you ever felt the peace of God that passes understanding? Have you ever felt true joy unspeakable? Those were gifts given to you to encourage you to take the land, to take the promise He didn't give them to you just to make you feel good. He knew that you were going to fight a battle. He knew there were going to be giants in the land and there were going to be fortified cities that you'd come against. He gave you the fruit to remind you of his promise. I love this little quote. I've got an underlined I try to put it in the back of my mind to draw it out. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to act in spite of my fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to act in spite of my fear. And my second one that I wrote down here is Heaven heaven is the inheritance given to the conquerors of complacency and the overcomers of fear. Heaven is the inheritance given to the conquerors of complacency and the overcomers of fear. Let me read from Romans 8, verse 18. Consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. And then he says this, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then I jump to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And Paul writes in verse 1, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now I want to look at a few of the patriarchs, three, that carry stories of struggle on the road to promise. Now, the first one is in uh, before the time of Pentecost. He never got the first fruits. He was filled, or the Spirit of God would move upon John when he would preach, but it did not reside permanently in him. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the Holy Ghost. In the Old Testament, the Spirit moved upon people. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but when I come back, I'm just not going to move upon you. I'm going to reside in you. You're going to be my temple. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the difference between you and John is that spirit does not leave you. But going back to John, taking that into consideration, look at his stoic character. He turns all of Israel upside down. And he boldly stares down his opponents by the waters of Jordan, not afraid to call a spade a spade, even going to the very courts of Herod and blaming him of infidelity. He was brave and bold, and I'm sure the, move, the Spirit of God moved upon him. But beneath the exterior of John the Baptist, underneath all of the, all of the accents of his personality, he was a man just like I am. He had all of the same traits that I had, or I have. There were giants in that land just like there were giants in the land of promise in John's life. And he faced every one till Aaron Antipas, he became enraged at John after John continually revealed his infidelity and imprisoned him. And from that time that he was imprisoned by Antipas until the day of his death, he was a man under siege. So much so, this man of the field who lived off of locust and honey, who was robed in garments of the field, a man that lived in ultimate freedom, who was now cast into a little cell that barely could contain him. He was taken out of an environment that he, he thrived off of. And now he was a man under siege. The battle that he was fighting was a battle he had not fought before. And so much was it, so strong was the enemy against him that he sent a message to Jesus and asked, Are you the one that we're looking for, or should we look for another? 
He's a man just like you. And now when I talk about man, I'm talking about not just the sex. I'm talking about everyone. He's just like you, flesh and blood. He ever questioned God? Don't tell me that you haven't. Everyone has questioned God at one time or another and said, why, God, do things happen the way they do? You know when that usually happens? When you're taken out of the environment that you thrive in and you're cast into a prison of doubt or grief or despair. But you know how God deals with that? Do you know how God reaches down to you in your little cell of self-pity where you're, you're, you're feeling in bondage? Are you the one that came to Jesus? And he says, I'll tell you what. You go back and tell John about the fruit. Tell him to remember the fruit. Tell him that the blind see, that the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Tell him about the fruit. You know why God puts a preacher in this pulpit? He wants to remind you when you're going through a struggle, don't forget the fruit. Eat the fruit. Live the fruit. We don't speak in tongues so we can show everybody that we're different than they are. We speak in tongues to keep it active inside of us. You know, Paul, just before he died, the last letter he wrote was written to his son in the Lord. He had a very special place in Paul's heart, Timothy did. And God knew the very personality of Timothy. He knew that Timothy was not as strong as he was. His character was different than that of Paul. And Paul knew that he needed to write a letter to Timothy to encourage him through the struggles that he was going through where he was. And he wrote in 2 Timothy, the 6th chapter, verse 1 through 7, these words. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What is the gift of God that's in you? Well, it goes back to your conversion when you were born of water and born of spirit. He said, stir up that gift that's in you, which was given to you through the laying on of my hands. What, what was he given by the laying on of his hands, the Holy Spirit? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Every time I'm afraid, I say to myself, Steve, that is not a sound mind. That is not a sound way to think. That is a defect in your process of thought. A sound mind is a mind absent of fear. Paul wrote that letter in, the, in a dark prison cell in Rome. He knew his days were numbered, and he was trying to encourage Timothy's heart. Timothy was realizing that it would not be long before his father in the Lord and his mentor would no doubt be put to death in Rome. And the reason for his death, what was the reason, what was the cause for his execution? It was his faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul knew that Timothy would be facing all kinds of difficult questions about the love and power of God. If a courageous man of power like Paul could be arrested, he would think, and that person could be tried and sentenced to death, what chance did a man like me, Timothy, have in a similar situation? 
And Paul writes to encourage him and spur him on not to lose heart or not to lose faith. And I do believe that's the reason that God is having me speak this message to you tonight. To spur you on not to lose heart or turn from your faith. I look at, if uh, people could be dogs, you ever, you ever think about that? If you were a dog, what kind of dog would you be? What kind of a dog do you think Paul would be? Come on, tell me, what kind of a dog would you say he was? Exactly. A Great Dane or a bulldog? He was a bulldog. Once he bit into something, whether it was right or wrong, he had his teeth in it and he wasn't going to let go. What kind of a dog would Timothy have been? What kind of a dog are you? I look at Timothy and I'd say he was more like a poodle. And there's a lot of poodles in the church. And there's a few bulldogs. But you know something? When God comes upon you, he can change you from something that you are to something that you are not. When the anointing of God moves through you, he can change your character. He can change your demeanor. He can take a guy like Stephen, who was sent to serve tables. Nice job, Stephen. What'd you do wrong to get that job? We're going to have you serve the women, serve the widows. But you know, when the Spirit of God came on Stephen, it changed him. He became a preacher while he was serving the tables. And when they were stoning him to death, he still was preaching amidst the stones. And the Bible says that his face shone as of the face of an angel. I want to tell you tonight that when the Spirit of God comes upon you, he changes everything about you. He anoints you with power and authority and you become something that you have not perceived yourself to be in the past. I think this is where I got to tell you about a dream I had. This is probably the motivation for what I'm saying tonight. I, every, anybody ever go to bed at night and wake up and you feel like there's evil spirits around you? You feel a spirit of fear? Or is it just me? I'm, I may just be the only guy. I think I'm a little sensitive spiritually. I can sometimes sense that, be discerning. But in my dream, all of a sudden, there were spirits, evil spirits around me. And I've had it happen in the past, not only in my dream, but when this would happen in my life, where I'll come out, I'll get a boldness. It's, Brother, Brother Russ, it's almost like a preaching. When the anointing comes on you and you feel the rush of the anointing of God giving you special unction, it's the same thing that happens to you all when you're teaching or preaching and you feel something come on you and all of a sudden you're saying words that you didn't even know you knew. But in the dream, all of a sudden, something happened that I'd never had happened to me before. It was like an explosion of anointing and power. And there was, I was like the Energizer Bunny ten times over, coming against darkness. And I, I was so amazed at the power and the courage that came through me in that instant. And then I got to think after I woke up, and the Lord had already said that. He said, you know what? Some of you in this room may one day be brought before authorities. Some of us one day may have to make a decision which determines whether we live or we die. Some of us may one day be asked to denounce Christ or die. And some of us who have imaginations, like I have a great imagination, have often wondered, will I be brave enough to answer the question the right way? But let me tell you a secret that's not a secret, that when you get into that position, God is going to give you an anointing. 
He's going to give you a power just like he gave Stephen. And your face is going to shine. And the glory of God is going to be heaven. And the power of God is going to flow from you. Don't forget the grapes. Don't forget that gift that's in you. Some of us, you feel like you're driving a a Chevette. Some of you don't even know what a Chevette is. But I want to tell you, you're driving a Suburban. I'm serious. Sometimes we forget that that God has given us something large enough to handle the obstacles that he's called us to face. Did God forget that they had big, strong fortresses in Canaan? Did God not know that the sons of Anak were there and that they were giants in stature? Hadn't he seen that? Absolutely he saw it. But he sent them trying to build into them. It's not you that's fighting. I'm fighting through you. And that's what God does, is he fights through us. In verse 6, if I look at that scripture that we just read, Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. If you look in the Greek, stir up, means to, in a type, fan the flame. Now, I got a fireplace at home, and I, it isn't the best fireplace, and sometimes it wants to burn good, and sometimes it doesn't. But I have found that if my fire is almost out, if I shut the doors of my fireplace and create a draft where the wind starts to come in through the living room into the fireplace, all of a sudden those coals start to glow. In other words, when the wind blows upon the fire, it causes oxygen to increase the flame. That's what stirring up that thing that is within you means. When you're feeling weak and you feel like your fire is down to a candle or sometimes you feel you're down to coals, you know what you need to do? You need to get in a draft. You need to get into the place where the Spirit of God is moving and the wind is blowing because it will fan the flame. And Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, stir it up. When you're afraid, stir it up. Get into a place of anointing. Listen to an anointed preacher. Turn on some music and worship God. Stir it up. There isn't a person in here that hasn't got a coal inside of them. When the coal goes out, you're reprobate. None of you are reprobate. Every one of you, if you could look into the core of your spiritual being tonight, you would see a little coal or a flame. All that happens is when a preacher preaches, sometimes all that happens is he's up behind the pulpit and the Spirit of God just blows on him. That's all it is. It's not the preacher. It's all like the Spirit of God is just blowing through him and the flame that's already in his heart starts to glow. And it starts to grow. Then in Revelation 3 and 2 it says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. The church of Sardis started off really good. The church of Sardis was once on fire. And God is reaching out to them in Revelation, the third chapter, and he's saying, stir it up. Don't let that which you had go out. And all that we need to do is do nothing to fail. Fan that flame. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. Now, I... I want to tell you, there's something unique about the word fear there. That word 
is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. That word fear is not timidity. It's the fear of failure. It's not that gift of the calling, by the way, the special calling that God has given us, isn't just the being a pastor or an apostle. Apostle, The calling is the conversion of you. Your, your conversion is your calling. And sometimes we just think sometimes it's just a pastor or a deacon. No, your calling was given to you when you were filled with the Spirit of God. And that, that uh, spirit of fear that he's talking about in this verse only one time means that you are afraid to fa- about failure. Then in Jude, the f- first chapter, verse 17, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there should be mockers in the last time, who would walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Timothy's living in a place where he's preaching a scandalous message by, uh, given to him by a man who's been determined to be a heretic locked in Rome. Don't you think that he met conflict? Don't you think that he met with, with resistance? Timothy, remember what spirit you've been made a partaker of. Church, remember what spirit you've been made partaker of that spirit that was in Paul and those in the early church is the same spirit that's in you. And then I'm going to sort of wrap this up in just a couple minutes here, but I wanted to share one or two thoughts with you first. Romans 8, verse 31 through verse 37 What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I have one last thought I'm going to try to share, and I hope that I don't confuse you, but just a little bit of tidbit about the feast and where we are in time. Just a thought, just a minute. When you look at God's plan of salvation for mankind, it's all summed up in the feast. Now, the feasts were related to Israel's agricultural seasons. All, All the feasts took place from the beginning harvest to the fall harvest, all seven feasts. 
and they fell into three different clusters. The spring and the summer feast, what they typified was the inauguration, the redemption, and with the fall feast, its consummation. Now, the first three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, occur in secession in the spring of the year. Only over a period of eight days, they became known collectively as the Passover. Number two, the fourth feast, harvest, occurs 50 days later at the beginning of, of the summer. Uh, by New Testament, Testament times, these feasts had become known by its Greek name, which was Pentecost, which means 50. Now, the last three feasts, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacle, extended over a period of 21 days in the fall of the year, just at the end of the year. They became to be known collectively as tabernacles. Now, let's, what, is it, what am I trying to say through all that? The first four feasts have already been fulfilled. The first two, by Christ, on the actual feast days that they occurred on, according to the Hebrew calendar. He was sacrificed on Passover. He was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. The, first, the third feast of unleavened bread carried the significance of his sacrifice, that it was without leaven or without sin. The fourth feast, Shavat, or the Festival of Weeks, was again fulfilled on the same exact day as the Feast of Pentecost. Now, there's still three feasts that have not yet been fulfilled in our New Testament. Collectively, they could be, fall into the category of the trumpets. Now, let me go back to Numbers 29 and read a verse here. And the Lord, in verse 23, I believe I'm in, I, might, I hope I have the chapter right. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall be a, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, and a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So its focus is not on the beginning of the age, but on the end of the age, or the end of the year. In that time, but the end of the age in our time. What is it that we seem to be focusing on right now, all of us? What are we looking for? What is the next thing that every one of us want to hear? It's a trumpet, right? And the trump of God shall sound in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and the dead in Christ shall rise. That's the beginning of trumpets. And then you get into Revelation from the 8th chapter to the 11th chapter, and you have the feast of the trumpets of atonement, judgment. Let me just read in closing from Revelation 8, 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them that were given seven trumpets. Those trumpets aren't a blessing to the world. Not at all. That's the atonement and judgment upon the earth. So, to close this all up and try to wrap it up in a bowl, we need to understand that God has not just tossed us out into this period of time without any wisdom or knowledge of where we are in history. All of the feasts have been fulfilled except for the atonement feast, the trumpets. So the next thing I'm looking forward to is the first trumpet. Gabriel Pick up your trumpet. I wonder, will we hear it? 
because all of a sudden we could be sitting in church, we could be in our car, we could be sleeping, we could be doing something wrong. We could be thinking or saying, I, that's why I got to be careful because the Bible says that we should look up for our redemption is drawing nigh. We're not ignorant of where we're at in the calendar. Look at the calendar. We're at the very end. We're tasted of the fruit of Canaan. We've already eaten of the fruit. We've got the fruit of the Spirit. We're almost home. We're almost home. So be wise about the decisions that you make. You know what I've got in the habit of doing, and it isn't, whatever I do is not real significant, but it's a habit that I have. I went back to doing something that I did when I first was saved. I try to, every day that I remember, I look up in the clouds, in the sky, and I say, Lord, let me not forget that this could be the day that you blow the trumpet. This could be my last day on earth. Help me to make it effective and let me make a difference. So if you'll stand with me, I, I don't have anything more to say at this point, but I don't want to be, I look at Israel and I see some, a bunch of complaining, selfish, self-centered, egotistical people that, that cannot see the forest because of the trees. And sometimes I look at myself and I say, I, I'm, Lord, Steve, look in the mirror. Have you forgotten where you're going and who you are or the fruit that's inside of you? And then I relax and I say, you know what? I'm not going to condemn myself. The devil does a good job of doing that. But I am going to realize that I am truly blessed. Every one of us is truly blessed. Lord Jesus, tonight, I pray that something that was said has been implanted in the very soil of our heart, that it sends down forth roots inside and it grows into a plant, a plant that produces fruit that others wish to eat. I pray that you would... Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at AbundantLifeChurch.org.